Welcome to Inflection Points, where in each episode we talk about the pivotal moments in the careers of tech leaders that help them navigate a new path to growth. My name is Joe Hine, and in this episode we speak with Daniel Gilbert, Global CEO at BrainLabs, a global digital-first media agency. They are truly one of the modern success stories in the world of media and technology. You'll love this one because we discuss why people overestimate the importance of inflection points. Why leaving Google to set up Brain Labs for Daniel was obvious. Blending scientists and creatives into a successful culture. And how Brain Labs executes M&A best practice. From SI Partners, this is Inflection Points. My guest today is Dan Gilbert, CEO of the data-led marketing agency Brain Labs. Set up in 2012 with a mission to be the smartest digital marketing agency in the world. Since its inception, Brain Labs has been on a phenomenal journey. By 2019, it had grown to 240 people and placed first on Deloitte's tech track Fast 50. Dan took investment from LivingBridge and expanded its capability and international reach across the US with eight acquisitions. It's now a global player in the media market. Dan, welcome to Inflection Points. Thank you very much, Joe. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I thought we could start our conversation about the name of the show, because uh, when we first spoke about it, you initially took issue with the name Inflection Points. I'd love to know <laughs> your your thoughts on it. I'll just cancel the show, Joe. Just, just cancel it now. <laughs> uh, no, I think like um, I've come to love it. And uh, the, the initial response was, because we were going to talk about the growth of the business uh, and the concept of Inflection Points being these kind of single moments where things sort of turned and spun and changed. Mm. And I guess my philosophy is much more along the lines of the kind of daily habits, the daily practice, the, the, you know, the boring moments, as opposed to the kind of Hollywoodized version of, you know, one big decision that changes everything. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think business is much more about showing up every single day and being consistent and uh, delivering over and over and over again than it is about, you know, everything that's spun on one thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's, uh, I think, I think there was a really interesting uh, perspective, an important one as well. Um, so good place to start, but let's dive in and see if we can still find some inflection points. Well, it doesn't mean that you can't look back and find those <laughs> moments where, you know, you sort of notice some change, but, uh, uh, you know, I think, um, there, there is that tendency, right. To look for big things or, you know, make transfer. And the reality is like a bit more boring than that, right? Like you just, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think like 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 sports, right? Like you don't you have the big victories, of course, but you, there's no such thing as overnight success. The training went in every single day. Everyone remembers the goal, though, don't they? That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but you're right. It's a, it's a team game, and everybody every day is uh, is important to build up to that. Right. But if I may take you back, um, you joined Google fresh out of university in 2010, a time that the business was going through hyper growth. What was the experience like in the company at the time? Oh, it's amazing. This is very early days of Google, it, relatively. Uh, uh, so maybe not the Google that everyone looks at today. Um, it's sort of not everything was figured out. Uh, so it's great fun. And I, I'd not, you know, I hadn't worked before uh, in, in the digital industry. So just being surrounded by super smart people working on interesting problems, it was great. Uh, obviously, I didn't end up staying there. I left to start Brain Labs. So it wasn't that great. Uh, uh, but that was the kind of, that was nothing to do with Google. That was entirely to do with me. It was all the um, entrepreneurial spirit and buzz that I had and excitement to go and create something. So, so I had a good, good, good year and a half there. 
But I, and what was it that you saw then? Because you did leave. I mean, this was a it's a job that everyone's dream. I remember the time. Loads of my friends went there, and and it was a great place to work. Yeah. So a year and a half in to give it up, what had you seen that that took you away from it? Do you know, we were just, I was working in the, I'd done a number of different roles and uh, I think a year and a half in, I was working in the ads team with some of the world's largest advertisers with Google Mm -hmm. uh, and media agencies. And I could just see that digital at the time, if you cast your mind back 2010, it was Mm -hmm. five, maximum 10% of the overall media mix. And people were treating digital as an add-on, mm. as a buy, and in the same way that you kind of bought TV. And I could just see from looking inside the platform and working with the right type of advertisers that there was this massive mismatch in skills and capabilities and agencies versus what the world was going to need one day, which was a much more scientific, data-driven, technology-led approach. Yeah, uh, it was just as much creativity, but a very different type of creativity to the way that it was being approached. So I said, there has to be a way to deliver a better service and better results. And uh, hence the name Brain Labs and starting Brain Labs. So Brain Labs, smart people experimenting. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, the rest, is, the rest is history, as they say, although I suppose yeah. that's what we're going to talk about today in the history. Yeah, yeah. But, it, you know, starting a business is never an easy thing. You know, how did you have such conviction at such a young age that this is what you wanted to do? Do you know, I, I, um, I can't really answer that beyond just... It was obvious to me, and there was never any other option. Interesting. Um, and I don't know how do you how do you gain that clarity of mind? Are you born with it, or is it just something you work on? I, I don't actually know that, uh, but I just knew it was like so obvious to me. I could look at it on a day to day basis, and I was like, "Well, this isn't right. There's a mismatch between this and this. I'm going to go and fill that gap." Uh, so I didn't think twice. I didn't hesitate. Uh, uh, I just got on with it, and um, I'm glad I did. Really. Yeah. Absolutely. How did you approach those early stages? You know, you said you you got the name, but where did you where did you start? Well, very humble beginnings, uh, and certainly not the clients that I'd been working with at Google at the time because they were just way too big. Mm. So, you know, I got started. I think my first client was a two hundred dollar a month local jewelry store, uh, and then uh, some sort of fashion businesses. It was it was, you know, it was small clients, and it was. I don't want to overstate the past, right? Like it was hustling. Yeah. And the aim at the time, obviously you, you write your mission statements multiple times as you're going on that mission. And I think we've updated it recently and we do want to be the biggest and best in the world. But at the time mm. it was like, that wasn't the mission. The mission was uh, make enough money to survive. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, it was only really much later when we realized what we could do that, that you know, we started to believe. But no, in the beginning it was do a great job for clients. Yeah. Uh, grow them, bring in more clients, and um, you know, survive. And, yeah. and you really did in the early days. Look at the payroll, and can you can you make payroll kind of thing? Like, which yeah. that that was my biggest concern and stress. Not like, oh, we're the biggest in the world. It's like, you know, can we pay people that work here? And uh, thankfully, we're past that. But um, yeah. yeah, I'd say like the good, even even way past when it was definitely safe. I still it was still at the back of my mind always. Like leave enough in there for a year's worth of payroll, like always. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep it going. You but, never yeah. know. And, it was not, but, it was not, it was not, um, um, glamorous early doors, right? Like I think some people romanticize the early days. Like it was, it was survival and thrival and thriving. Like, yeah, don't get me wrong, but there was no magic to it. Right. Like it wasn't, 
uh, you know, didn't, we didn't, no one gave us anything. Like, and I think that's what you learn yeah. as an independent, particularly. Uh, you know, it gives you anything. You have to go and win it and earn it. And it's, it's and, hard, and hard one. Continue. Yeah. And and one of those first wins was which um, the the magazine company or the consumer um, uh, protection company, if you like. Uh, you know, it was that was a big win for your business. How did you set yourself up to? to win, make sure you won the proposal and how pivotal was it for the business? Oh, that was super early. Yeah, it was amazing. I think it was like we had still, we'd been doing a load of work, like cool work that we thought was scientific and technology and data driven, but we'd been doing it with those small clients that I mentioned earlier. Mm. And then we received this RFP uh, from which, and I don't, for those that don't know it, particularly for an international audience, mm. which is very famous in the UK for reviewing products and services. So it's a trusted source yep. uh, of information and an amazing business and an amazing brand. Uh, the US equivalent is like a consumer reviews. And um, I think it's because of their business that they, at the time, felt the need to review a wide number of, or a wide array of agencies. So mm. we're very mm. privileged to be invited. But I think under a tighter agency process at that time, going back some time now, it's about six or seven years ago. Uh, you know, we might not have been on the long list. So they put us on there and we just showed up and talked about the work that we were doing, not really expecting much out of it. And I think, you know, the team at the time sort of turned around and said, wow, like this is really different to everything else that we're seeing. And we've tried this and we've tried that. And we've tried mm-hmm. various other things. We, we want to give this a go. Uh, do you know how to raise an invoice? Uh, that's one of the questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a real business like it wasn't, uh, we're like yeah 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 of course uh and uh, and we did and i think you know it was it was probably an inflection point for us because you know we started doing work for them mm. and it'd been the first piece of work that we'd run via what i'd via what i'd call like a proper rfi rfp multi-agency type process yeah and uh it was the excitement of winning it which very very quickly say minus an hour uh switch to like how are we going to deliver and are we going to deliver and that kind of pre-match jitters and i think as we started delivering great work for them and great results and and you know really being a transformative partner and building a transformative partnership that exists to today you know we sort of realized that we were quite good at what we were doing and that there was no reason to be so humble about it that like I don't know why, but we just didn't know or think that what we were doing would necessarily work for enterprise clients uh, or for large budgets. It was like, it worked even better. So it's like, it was a real change moment for us, I'd say more mentally than anything else to say, you know, we we can do this. Like, you know, we're good at this. So let's go and do it for more people. What what do you think made the difference? What did Witch see in you and Brain Labs that that made them take that leap of faith? Do you know, I think they just... uh, I think they just took the time and had enough of the discipline to truly analyze. Like that was kind of their business model, right? An analysis and assessment, right? So they're really, really good at evaluating uh, products and services. Yeah. I think they had also just hit a moment in their business where they tried a bunch of different stuff and it was obvious to the team there that they needed to do something different. And, you know, it didn't, I, I mean, you'd have to ask them, but I don't think it felt like the biggest risk at the time because we'd been so methodical and disciplined about this is what's happening now. This is what's not working. This is what's working. This is what we're going to do. This is a 90 day plan and all that, but that, you know, they believed and they were right to, by the way. And it was, it was brilliant success for them as well. Yeah. 
So just approaching it with that discipline, almost almost um, being being uh, representing yourself in a very grown up way that um, allowed them, uh, enabled them to be able to make that 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 um, that decision. And caring enough, right? Like showing that we would show up and drive it and be there and take them seriously. Mm. Uh, and I think um, yeah, that remains true today, right? Like you've got to have the hunger, yeah, uh, and desire to win for clients. Um, and um, yeah, I think. I don't know, there's some magic that goes into various pitches and client meetings and QBRs and all that, but you know, a, a desire to win for them and with them as a team will probably stand out head and shoulders above everything else. So in, in, when in 2012 you, you founded Brain Labs, as we were just speaking about, but digital was still a fairly new tool in the industry. Most of the agencies at the time were full of traditional marketeers, but you decided to start a marketing business with engineers and mathematicians. What made you confident that this was going to be the right approach? And marketers too, so a mix. But it was it was bringing together those different skills that I could really see as the key to unlocking better results in our industry. You know, I think when you looked at the amount of data that was coming in from all different sources, giving you intelligence about how customers were behaving, it was just quite obvious to me that data literacy was a core part of being able to translate that back into marketing actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, marketing didn't have that as a discipline at the time really at all, like ability to read a spreadsheet or work in Excel. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was totally obvious to me at the time and remains so today. And I think it doesn't mean that all marketers need to be data practitioners, but having some data literacy or uh, scientific rigor, so how to set up an experiment and actually read the results and understand what's working and what's not, uh, you know, I think is a core marketing skill now. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it, it feels quite obvious to us now, as you said, but it, but it wasn't back then. And, and you brought together different personality types in terms of, you know, the, the scientists and the more creative people with a need to create a cohesive culture. How did you go about doing that? Well, it's just team building, isn't it? And I think that's the bit that I love and the bit that I show up for. Mm. And I'm always drilling into our team is that uh, you know, we, are, we are one team as the uh, expression in our culture code goes, that you know, our entire existence as an agency centers around our ability to bring in people with different skills, put them together in the right type of team dynamic, and then produce something that's greater than some of its parts. If you could recreate what we did with one person, then there would be no need for us, right? Like a client could just hire one person. That would be that. So I think it's like it's always been about that and remains about that today. Like how can you bring together different people with different skills and produce something? And and how important has the Brain Labs handbook been in that? Brain Labs handbook, which has been rebranded recently as the Culture Code. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, it's been a critical part of our success uh, and for those that don't know it's a um, it's a document that outlines how who and what we want to be yeah and how we show up at work so it's a documented version of what we what our culture is and I'm hesitating a little bit because it's partly what we want our culture to be so yeah. it's partly aspirational which I think is okay because uh, until you write it down and say this is what we want you're never going to build towards that yeah so uh, it's been absolutely critical because I think once we've got over 50 people, uh, you know, I couldn't interview everyone and it became really quite essential that people coming into the company understood what we were about 
and that we could set a standard uh, you know, that I could sort of hold myself accountable to as well as everyone else. It's not like uh, just just everyone else. Interesting. Uh, and yeah, funnily enough, like uh, some of my proudest moments have been when people have said to me, oh, damn, like that's not very brain labs, is it? And your first reaction is like, what are you talking about? I have brain labs. Uh, uh, but then afterwards you realize, no, no, like this is, this is great. Like people are engaging with and helping build and form part of our culture. And, you know, maybe I should have had a more systematic approach to that particular problem. Uh, you know, or maybe I could have listened to that or looked at this blind spot and, uh, you know, they were right. And I love that. So uh, I think it's been, I think it's been a really critical part of well, winning because, you know, we describe ourselves as a win together culture, but also enjoying the journey. So um, you know, being explicit about what we want and what we don't want mm-hmm. and uh, you know, helping people understand, decodify, demystify that, almost gamify it if they want to. And that's great because uh, you, know, you wouldn't have written those down. We wouldn't have written down the culture code if we didn't aspire to those behaviors. So yeah, if yeah, everyone's yeah, yeah. trying hard to do that, then you get a great soul and vibe of a company. And that's it's so interesting that it's actually changed your behavior and mm-hmm, totally. kept you honest um, by by writing down the set of rules. What was the genesis for it? What, what kind of at what point did you realize that you needed to to do this? I think it was like it was it was partly fortune because we'd taken on some space in King's Cross in London, mm-hmm. and then we'd outgrown that space and we had to split across two offices that were literally round the corner from each other, so they weren't far. But even then, it felt like oh well, you know, if everyone doesn't know where our culture is, then there's going to be a different culture in the two offices. Uh, so I better write it down. Mm. Uh, and it was an incredibly powerful thing to do. I mean, it really was. Um, uh, I recommend it to any agency owner, but even business, like just what do you care about? What's important to you? And then yeah, it's become like, uh, I don't say like a filter, filter is the wrong word, but it's become like a part of a con- contract constitution like document where people can read it before they join. And if it's not them, then that's okay. Like it's not supposed to be for everyone. But the people that are excited about it want to join and want to contribute to it. And that's, you know, it's got that kind of snowball effect. So yeah. it's been amazing. So great thing to do. And how did you go about creating it? Was it something you sat in a dark room by yourself? I did write it and then opened it up to feedback. So there's, there's a few different ways to do it. And there are some HBR articles that we can link to after. It's about kind of cultures that are bottom up where you take the average of what everyone thinks. They, they tend to fail uh, repeatedly fail because um, if you know, I don't believe in top downness for everything, Joe, but uh, w- where there's not like 100% authenticity, mm-hmm. a culture will not get uh, reinforced. So if there was something in there that I even mildly disagreed with, and then I don't know, someone showed up in a meeting and there was some behavior that followed something, and I didn't say, well, that's not very brain abs, or you know, that is very brain abs, and celebrate something that was. Uh, then it all falls apart quite quickly, right? If people don't see leaders not just living or at least aspiring to living the values uh, or the culture, then you know that's then then you get that gap between oh, it's it's just words on the wall, like no one actually cares about this, and then people don't care. Uh, so so I decided to go, you know, it's one of the few things where it's like, look, we're going to do this. You know, I'll write this, then it's changed a lot since, a lot, of course, as we've grown as a company and as people have contributed to it and people have said, no, 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 this, this bit is not working or this thing that you saw, thought was really nice is actually being weaponized now and turned into something that someone is using to say, like, you know, you know do that, uh, uh, which I don't think is the intention of the, of the code. 
so, yeah, it's refined and revolved and will continue to do so over time, as I think any healthy culture should do. And just to be clear about that, we don't have the same culture today that we did when we were two people in my living room, right? Nor would I want us to. Uh, so I hope it evolves and, and develops. A living, breathing document, but sounds as important today as it was when you first wrote it. Totally. I, I read somewhere about the random ramble system. What's that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> random ramble. Uh, it's, um, it's new life. Uh, it basically, uh, God, this was before AI was even popular. Um, <laughs> it's not that fancy, but algorithmically matches two brain labs together that wouldn't work with each other or interact with each other otherwise and uh, recommends a coffee date and then gathers feedback on that date. So, you know, the convention is that you rate the date eight out of eight. <laughs> Otherwise, this internal turmoil and scandal. So. And, and and this is this is so two two employees don't know each other that are uh, identified by AI to not know each other and are very unlikely to ever know each other and not have anything in common. But to break down barriers in the organisation, yeah, just to bring people together. Fantastic. So you've established Brain Labs and you started to scale when you decided to take investment from LivingBridge. You were one of the trailblazers in the market in this regard for for, for your market, for our market. Um, private equity f- has had a lot of successes, but there's also some horror stories. What made you take the leap and get into bed with the private equity guys? So, so you know, I think you're right to identify that private equity was not massively active in our space. In fact, there were a handful of marketing services investments, uh, I think, in the UK ever. There have been some bad uh, stories many years earlier, but that, I mean, it was wasn't it wasn't really a thing. So when we got to about two hundred people, I think it was like we were doing some great work. We were working with amazing clients. We just opened in the US, and we thought, you know, like this is going really well, but it was still small. And like we can talk about disruption, but we're not really disrupting anything. Like we're tiny. And let's remember our own place in the world. I wonder how much more we could do with a partner. Mm-hmm. We'd seen some success stories of similar-ish agencies with their stories and the whole codes and so on and so forth. So we kind of went down this path to say, uh, let's look at some of our options. And we went in there not really thinking about PE, like it was kind of a backup option, I think, yeah. um, to be counted at the time. Uh, but then the more and more that we learned about PE, the more and more it appealed to me. Um, well, they, they, I mean, for a start, uh, you know, they wanted us to carry on running the business. Uh, and I thought, well, I am really enjoying myself. Like, uh, I'm very happy to be part of something else, but at the same time, I don't. I'm, I'm a bit nervous about the concept of reporting to this one who reports to that one, and then losing losing all of that control over our own destiny, uh, and losing control over the quality of the work that we're delivering for clients. So, you know, there is a risk of that if you go into a a different ownership structure, let's say, or a whole co structure, whatever it might be. So, I think that was on my mind, and. You know, the ability to continue to serve our people and our clients, uh, it really did appeal to me. I think like that would have been a net neutral position. So that obviously wasn't the key driver. That was a key driver versus the whole goes. Uh, I think the thing that stuck with me more than anything else was they thought we should be buying companies rather than selling ours. Uh, and I liked that. And they, you know, they had said, uh, you know, we'll help you understand, navigate, uh, enter into that world of mergers and acquisitions uh, and um, you know back a plan to go and grow the business even more. I said, what's the catch? Uh, 
And it wasn't a catch. Like it really wasn't. I mean, it's been great. Uh, we're four years into our Living Bridge investment cycle. And um, they've been a super partner. Like we've delivered on the original plan that we spoke about. I'd love to say that it was linear, like from yeah. here to there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but a bit more bumpy, especially when you throw COVID in the mix. But, yeah. uh, you know, we articulated a strategy to them about growing in the US. It was 9% when we started. It's 60% of our business now. Wow. And um, uh, rounding out and building our digital media capability. So, um, you know, really upping our game to yep. the point where we could be a full service digital media agency. Yeah. And doing that in a way that was basically like, you know, I think by next year or the year afterwards, we'll be able to drop the word digital because all media will be digital. So you know, taking it all the way back to when I started with a theory that things were going in that direction, uh, you, know, you know, that was the right wave to ride because mm-hmm. uh, it has happened and it really has been happening. We've had some great recent examples of that. Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, we touched on culture earlier and it's so important in a people business and a service business. But having money men on board, um, often they have, you know, historically or, or conceptually have different ideas about, you know, how the business may be run. How have you protected or real culture? What have you sought to do? Mm. Look, I think that's about choosing the right partner because, um, you know, if you asked uh, any brain labber, mm-hmm. you know, what they thought of Living Bridge, uh, and I mean this with no disrespect, they might say, who's Living Bridge? <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, kudos to our, to our PE partners because, you know, they're not visible across the business and they're not involved in defining our culture or managing that culture or reinforcing any element of it. Uh, so, you know, in, in, in essence, yeah, they really have played that role where we continue to run the business and uh, internally and externally and you know, by perception and reality, like they took a minority stake in the business. Uh, and it's been great in that regard, right? So I think you're know, the right type of partner that knows where they add value, uh, uh, and they 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 wouldn't profess to be culture experts. Uh, uh, so you know, protecting the culture has not been yeah, you know, it's not been on my to do list, right? Like it's it's been uh, continued to build and develop the culture. Don't get me wrong; it's a permanent piece of work, but it really hasn't changed under LivingBridge um, at all. Um, it's no, no more than it would have changed just because it's changing as you go through growth. And, and of course, the impact of doing acquisitions, which changes things, which is, I guess, an indirect effect of having part with Living Bridge. But it's not, do you know what I mean? It's not cause and effect. That makes sense. Absolutely. And that's really interesting that, you know, Living Bridge are very experienced outfit. They, you know, they've done this before many times. And so, um, you know, having someone that understands the nature of your business has to help in that journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think by the time that we did the investment with them, uh, they were one of the few that had invested in other services businesses, let alone marketing mm-hmm. services businesses. Like we met some PE houses who, uh, you know, asked us where, where was the plant and machinery? Uh, <laughs> Your balance sheet's wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so no, they got it and it's been great. Yeah, fantastic. And, and as you said, one of the huge advantages of a financial bar was your ability to execute M&A. Mm-hmm. you've made eight transactions but going back to that first moment of thinking right now i need to do m and i have a i have a partner on board they're going to back me where did you start oh you're taking me back in time uh we started from uh where was the biggest demand from our existing client base interesting so where did we think across our portfolio we could add the most value 
by having a more joined up proposition with our clients. So the first acquisition that we did was was with Distilled. Uh, Will Critchlow had founded that business, uh, an SEO agency. And at the time, uh, we were partnering up with lots of other SEO agencies, but they were the ones that we loved the most. And we thought, you know, if we could really, like, it's one thing to partner with someone, but it's another thing entirely to be one brand, one P&L, one team, one goal that's a client goal. And um, not saying that we haven't learned anything since about how to do M&A and uh, how to integrate, uh, but it was hugely successful. And, um, uh, you know, it really got us to the point where we could deliver both of those services, uh, you know, to a super high standard, fully tied up, uh, still with that specialist skill, but with a joined upness that, you know, clients care about, which is results. So that was a super transaction. And um, yeah. And, what, and one that you knew beforehand. So this was a uh, an existing relationship, which is, you know, yes. In, yes. in my experience and, and, and yours, by the sounds of things, you know, that that's always going to be a, a great way to bring a business on board. Oh, well, we'd done some work together, right? So it wasn't even just knowing someone, it was knowing the quality of their yeah. work and the quality of their people. So it was one step further even, which is great. You can't always do that, but it was ideal. So, so in those instances where you can't do that, I'd just be really interested, you know, you are meeting someone cold, uh, perhaps it's part of a process, perhaps it's part of your outreach that you've gone out to them and, uh, you've got options on the table. How do you choose that person that you've, you know, perhaps met, I don't know, a handful of times that they're worth the money and are going to join you and, and, and pick up your handbook or was it a cold of culture, um, and run with culture it? Culture code, yeah. Culture code. <laughs> uh, how do you do that? Well, I think culture fit is an important piece, right? Like it's easy to get distracted by, you know, the M and the A uh, and the financial element to that and the due diligence and the financial due diligence. But ultimately, like it's about people. So you know, do you really believe that in doing a transaction, you're going to get more out of these people uh, and that it's going to be a great opportunity for them? Because if on the other side of it, the people within the business that you're buying don't have more opportunity a more career upside uh, and you lose those people, then you've lost what you bought. So I think, um, you know, it's always the lens that I would use first is, you know, is there a good people fit and some mutual benefit that you genuinely get from putting two entities together. Uh, so that's where it starts. And I think that's for me, the gating item, right? Like it's before we even talk about numbers, diligence, you know, commercial market fit, like et cetera, trends, all that customer references and blah, blah. Uh, you know, is, there, is there a good people thesis here? And, and do you have a methodology to approach that or is it just gut instinct? Well, you start with gut instinct about the founder and uh, or the leadership of that business and the business that built because you can't always get access early doors to other things. Mm. Uh, you, could, like, so you can't speak to a cross-section of people across the business. So I think it's, you know, it starts with... Yeah. Uh, you know, just fit like do we get on well and do we see the world in a similar way and do they understand right like i think that's a key part of our buying process is being transparent and honest and open about what it's going to look like on the other side yeah so i think there's far too much in this dance and you know i know how you advise your clients but um you know there's far too much of this like well don't say that until after we're diligence or don't say that until down the line and blah 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 we just in our experience we've just found it to be far more productive when we say who we are at the outset say what it is that we're trying to achieve and then tell them quite openly what's going to happen uh and if they're not up for that that's fine and i think you know one 
instance of that is that we've been quite strong and direct about integration. Uh, you know, we integrate all the businesses that we bought and it doesn't come from a place of not valuing or respecting other people's brands. Literally just comes from a client centric lens, which says, do you know what? Our clients, when we show up to them, they don't actually care if, you know, so we bought so-and-so and so-and-so bought so-and-so and this one's on this in fact, they want the opposite, which is simplicity, and they want yep. themselves to be the key focus area and the results that you're going to get for them to be the only thing that you're thinking about. Yeah. You know, not who did you buy when and how much and who's on, do you know what I mean? So, so, so we've, you know, in, in, in that respect, we've just said to people up front that like, we're going to integrate. It might be quick, it might be slow. We'll do that in partnership, yep. but ultimately, like, we want one company and we want everyone together. There are benefits to that for your people as well, yeah. Uh, you know, which is the opportunity that creates the the cross pollination of ideas, yeah. the sense of community that they'll get from being part of Brain Labs. Uh, but if that's not for you, that's fine, and that has not been for some people, and it has been for others. Uh, so you know, better to say it, I think. And, and just digging a little deeper on the integration, like what? How does it manifest itself? I mean, clearly, you know, dropping the brand after a period of time and whatever that takes. I mean, that's, that's the real obvious one, but what about the, the layers underneath that and, and bringing businesses alongside? how do you go about doing that? You'd have to ask our chief integration officer, but I'll tell you, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's matrices and checklists and spreadsheets and all the rest of it. It's everything, right? You're reinventing an entire operating system. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't pull it down to one thing. People will fixate on the brand. You know, the brand is the easiest and the smallest part of things overall, right? You're really just, re-employing and re-engaging the entire workforce so it's complicated and it's hard and it forces decisions that you wouldn't make otherwise and often some difficult ones and i think that's the reason that people don't do it because it's difficult yeah yeah and i think you know even more so in public companies uh because there's no roi demonstrable from integrating businesses you know it just so happens that we have a super supportive medium to long-term investor who knows that it's the right thing to do and therefore, you know, we all agree it's the right thing to do. So we do it, even if it costs tons of money, resources, time, effort, uh, tears, pain, joy. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's the hard thing. But you know what? Like, you want to make an amazing company and you have to do the hard things sometimes. So, yeah. Um, do you know, that is so comforting to hear you talk about that. Through my career, I've done many jobs and one of them has been post-deal services and postal integrations. And I have a lot of friends that do that. And so many businesses don't, uh, don't put any emphasis on it. They they think the MA has stopped at the point that you sign the piece of paper, and it and it doesn't. Right, you have to integrate properly to make it work. You know, you said there's no ROI on it. I would argue that the ROI is the transaction. Right, you know, you won't get ROI on your transaction unless you're going to integrate properly. And actually, so many uh, so many of the conversations I have with sellers is around, you know, they want to know what the integration looks like. They know it's going to happen, right? They know, you know, it's inevitable that something's going to happen. And the less you can tell them, uh, the more concerned they are. Actually, even knowing that it's going to be painful, at least then they're like, well, okay, that's fine. I don't mind some of that pain because there's there's a reason for it and I understand it and there's something better at the end of it. Joe, that's the reason that in part, I mean, we've um, worked on a couple of deals together as we've progressed our own M&A function, we've started including integration items in LOIs, even in LOIs, let alone, you know, let alone um, you know, the next phase. So this is, as you're agreeing, just the commercials of the deal, there's nothing binding, but you're already talking about it up front. Yeah, the principles of even, even like, obviously not 
down to specifics, but we're agreeing the principles of integration up front, which you know really really brings home the point I was making. It's not just chat; like it's real, uh, and like I think that's important, right? Like you know, a deal is con- is construed of you know what am I going to get financially and blah blah blah. But it's also construed of like, well, what's going to happen afterwards? To your point, so uh, you know that's why we've put some effort into it, and uh, you know we don't have a separate uh, M and A. And then integration team that is you know, the one team that works together. So. Yeah, I would argue that's even best practice. Um, I hear congratulations are in order. Quite recently, you announced that you're appointed media agency of choice for Estee Lauder. Well done. Thank you. Uh, a huge moment and potentially a new inflection point. Um, what does this mean for Brain Labs and why is it different? Uh, I think we spoke right from the beginning about the thesis where digital had been 5% and then traditional media was 95%. Yeah, and I always believe that there would be this tipping or inflection point where, you know, the the, the balance would shift, and that uh, it would you know, it would almost be the inverse where digital was first, and then there would be a few lines of on the media plan at the end for some traditional media. Yeah, uh, and I don't think that we're there yet, but we're certainly on the cusp of it. And like you look at the UK market, and it's hard to get precise estimates, and it's obviously different brand by brand. But once you've hit over the 75, 80% mark. The fact that we can do all of our media planning and buying with a digital first, data first, audience first lens, where we might not be as strong on or can't even compete necessarily on buying power and scale, that actually becomes quite irrelevant. So when that's 50%, of course it's relevant, right? Like you can't really expect clients to invest in you when you're going to be 20 to 200% more expensive for the same media than someone else. But when that becomes irrelevant, which is becoming increasingly so, and, and brain power becomes more important than buying power, that's what gives us permission to win. And I think that's what you know, you're starting to see with some of the wins that we've announced, some of the wins that we will announce. Uh, and and you know, please God, some, many more of the ones that will come uh, in the future. You know, I think uh, hopefully at the next Inflection Points uh, interview, if I'm ever invited back after my <laughs> terrible behaviour, uh, uh, you know, we we'll look back at this moment in time where, yeah, like, it's not us, right? Like, it's um, you know, we didn't make the market. Uh, we're just, um, uh, you know, we're just following uh, following the direction of the market, which I think it is changing right now in front of our own eyes, certainly in the UK. Just giving clients what they want and what they need. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Look, one final question. After looking back, I'd like to look forward. What's exciting you about the next twelve months? Oh, 12 months. Uh, I think there's a, um, we're very excited about the ability to take what we've got and start scaling it internationally, more internationally. And I know in your introduction, you called us global. Uh, I think we're international, not global. Uh, and um, uh, reaching all the corners of the world, I'm super excited about. And some of the technological developments that are allowing that to happen, uh, inventory that you can get through CTV to access what previously would have been completely inaccessible to us uh, in media that we couldn't even access if we wanted to. Uh, that's super exciting. So I'm incredibly excited about that. Yeah. I think connected TV is something that's been around for quite a while, but it's now just beginning to, to kind of break through and be useful. Um, it's very interesting to see how that forms a bit, a greater part of the mix. Yeah. And then chat GPT seven, being able to do my job for me. I mean, fantastic. <laughs> And mine. (laughs) I'm going to put my feet up. Dan, thank you ever so much. I really appreciate your time. Joe, thanks so much. Inflection Points is a production of SI Partners. 
SI Partners is a leading corporate finance boutique for agencies, consultancies, and technology providers at the forefront of the digital economy. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Joe Hine, and you've been listening to Inflection Points.